Anyway, this isn't about Star Wars. This is about lesbian necromancers in space, which is very, very different. Hello, and welcome to another socially distant episode of Grape Culture, the podcast where three women drink alcohol and talk about things and stuff. I'm Sam. I'm Kim. And I'm Alex. (laughs) And welcome to the episode. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the book Gideon the Ninth by Tasman Muir. I'm thinking that's how you say her name. Um, But before we start talking about this book, which is essentially lesbian necromancers in space, we have... (laughs) We have... I pitched it. (laughs) It's it's the pull quote on the front of the book, lesbian necromancers in space. I know, you just can't Uh, can't beat it. And you can't not say it like the Muppets, so you have to say it that way. Um, so, lesbian necromancers in space. But before we talk about that, we've got some booze and also some non-booze to talk about this week. Ooh. So let's let's sandwich the non-booze. Alex, what have you got? So I have got the granite earth. Full stop. Just that's it. Well, I might need your help. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I'm not sure what grape this is. It's a red wine, but if I put this up to the screen, can you help me? Uh, uh, a bit. It's a Grenache. 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 I know what it sounds like, but I can never pronounce it. But it's a Grenache, essentially. Okay. It's a blend, but Grenache front. Carignan. Carignan. Grenache. Sinsol. Anyway, that is the wine <laughs> that I have purchased, mainly because Earth is a planet. Um, <laughs> I knew that was the reason, and I still love it. Still love it. Also, granite. I feel like that kind of, I don't know, the, the, front, the, the book front cover feels quite granite-esque. As a kind of material, I feel like that sums up Gideon the Ninth. Also, the label has this kind of like break in it. So it's like the white bit of the label and then the granite bit of the label. And in between is this like vein. And, you know, they talk about veins quite a lot in the book. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So it's a very very visceral sounding wine is what you mean. And they do do a white... Um, and they do do a red, and I would usually go do for do. the white. But um, I went for a red because I felt that it was a little bit more fitting to the book. Um, you know, there's lots of references to blood. Um, red's a bit more, I suppose, earthy. I feel like as they would probably drink red if they did within the spaces that they occupy within the book. So the description on the back is this rich, smoothly textured wine is full-bodied and complex with raspberry and mulberry floof. The mulberry floof. Mulberry floof. Mulberry fruit flavours, complemented by a hint of spice. There you go. It's quite strong. It's 14%. Ooh. I know. So get ready for a drunken one. I'm fully expecting an... I'm a bit drunk, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. That's part of the fun. I'm expecting to dislike it. Let's see how that goes. (laughs) Okay. And Kim, you are not doing the alcohol this week, which is fair. What is your pretend alcohol that you have in this place? I have pretend alcohol because I fancy a break. I have alcohol-free sparkling botanical G&T with six fragrant botanicals blended by Hamish Martin. Head gardener mixed with a refreshing tonic, served over ice, expertly blended for Marks and Spencer. Um, Sounds yeah. like they've mixed a head gardener, as in a person. Into the gin. Yeah, yeah it does a bit. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm guessing that he's no Sue Daniels. I also did notice, like, I don't think that they drank in this book. I didn't notice any mention of any kind of alcohol or intoxicating spirits anyway. So I felt quite pleased with my decision to not drink. G&T feels a little bit more like earthy and nature related, which isn't wholly related to the kind of magic that's in this book, but it kind of gave me that similar kind of witchy vibe. So we'll see how it tastes. What about you, Sam? What about me, Sam? Um, I have... (laughs) Back on the booze. Yes, I managed four weeks wine-free or booze-free entirely. (laughs) And I am now back on my bullshit, as the kids say. As um, you promised me I, last episode. 
as I promised to be. And I am drinking the Rex Mundi Shiraz Grenache 2019, which I believe is Australian. Let me check the notes. I did not check. No, it's French. Completely different. Completely different. <laughs> <laughs> but I chose it because you will see a picture on our Instagram listeners, but I'm showing Kim and Alex that it has this very demonic looking gargoyle on the front. And it also had a bat on the top and it's got this very gothic design around the top of the label. So I thought it was That's appropriate very- for a book. Appropriate for a book about necromancers. Um, and again, like Alex, I think red wine is probably a good choice for this book. The tasting notes. God, it sounds it's, it's all a bit wanky, this one. But then it's wine, so when is it not? From deep within the impenetrable wilds of southern France. Oh, it says southern France in the first sentence. Could have read that, <laughs> didn't <laughs> From deep within the impenetrable wilds of southern France, amongst the baked soil and jagged rocks... Carved by the interminable winds of immeasurable millennia comes Rex Mundi, this dark secret named for the Cathar's long-forgotten king of the world, the lord of earthly pleasures and the forbidden delights of mortal flesh will stain your soul with its luscious berry fruits and leave you forever luxuriating in its hauntingly deep grip. Jesus Christ. Yeah, once feared by all that were holy, good and righteous, Rex Mundi has again risen to strike fear into the hearts of all those who dare to unleash him. So a fairly good match. That's really good match. That's a really good match. That might be our best match. Might be the most closely linked that we've managed. <laughs> and this is also vegan friendly. So Ooh, damnation yes. is good for uh, for everyone. All all diets. Cheers. Cheers. It's really nice. Is it? Yes. Can you bring me some? Oh, Kim, I don't know. Really, I, you look really disappointed with your choice. No, I'm just really jealous that you guys have really nice red wines, and I haven't had like a really nice red wine in ages on this podcast. My non-wine is all right. It smells more like gin and tonic than it tastes, but it doesn't taste bad. Like it tastes quite nice and refreshing. And I think that you know, if this wasn't a rainy fucking day, talking about a super gothic book where you guys are drinking red wine and we were all drinking gin and tonics or wine or whatever in the garden it'd be lovely but it's a summer drink on like the first proper feeding week of autumn so it's very nice but it's not what i want it's not hitting the spot Mm-mm. how's your granite it's actually quite nice <laughs> oh. I'm, I'm so sorry kim i'm so sorry because obviously like you know you're the red wine drinker among us and you've got the gin and tonic non-booze yeah I think you're right, Kim. I think it's something to do with the fact that it it definitely feels like the first day of autumn at the moment. And therefore, a red is more welcomed than usual or has been in the last couple of months, which have been quite hot. Yeah, it's quite nice. Good. Good. Anyway, so uh, Gideon the Ninth. Gideon the Ninth. Gideon the Ninth. Gideon the Ninth. We're talking about Gideon the Ninth which is, as we said, lesbian necromancers in space. But why have we chosen this book? I mean, Kim, this was your suggestion initially. I think this was your suggestion about six months ago, to be fair. Um, Why are we doing it? Why are we doing it now? We're doing it because I kept hearing about this book, that it was so funny and so gruesome and so violent and so interesting and so mind-blowing. We read a lot of books, but we don't do a lot of genre fiction. We've done, you know, essays and nonfiction and literary fiction, but I, I, I didn't really feel like we'd done anything quite so entertaining. We decided to do it now because of the slightly horror links, I think, you know, necromancy, autumn, spooksville, spoopy time. So I thought that it would be a really good choice for us to talk about as the second one got released in case people wanted to buy both at the same time. And in case people were looking to us as tastemakers to tell them what to buy. Well, I mean, I just assumed that. So. Yeah, naturally. So for anyone that might not have read Gideon the Ninth or have heard of it um, and is listening to this as their first sort of exposure to it, can anyone give a brief summary of what it's about? We should probably preface this by saying there will be spoilers in both this and the episode to come. So if you don't want it spoiled, don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> Gideon the Ninth is about... Women fight thing on planet, have hard time. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. The premise of Gideon the Ninth is that 
in this reality, there are nine planets referred to as houses that serve an overarching emperor. All of those houses study and are specialists in a particular form of necromancy. Gideon is a serf of the ninth house, which is kind of like the gothy culty house has a bad reputation in the rest of the galaxy as being a bit weird and being a bit like elusive and secretive. Um, the Nemo kid in drama class, yeah. Basically, it's the Black Parade <laughs> of houses. And she is, she fucking hates it and she's trying to escape. She has like her antagonist is Hero, who is the like princess of the Ninth House. She's the, the de facto leader of the Ninth House. They're both like 17. And then she's about to leave. She's about to get away, but she makes a deal with Hero to go with her on this super secret mission to the number one house where the emperor came from to enter essentially a competition to become an immortal being. Gideon wouldn't become an immortal being. Hero would become an immortal being if she if she solves this super secret puzzle. Gideon goes for reasons. They go to this planet with all with representatives from all the other planets. And they enter into this competition and then pretty soon people start dying and then they have to figure out who the fuck is killing people because it's kind of like a locked room mystery because it could only be them. It could only be them or the other representatives of the house. They try and solve it. Shit goes batshit crazy. Lots of bone, blood, magic and fuckery. Skullduggery might be the word there. Literal <laughs> skullduggery. Nice. <laughs> um, the end. <laughs> the end. Pretty much sums it up. Yeah. So based on what you knew about the book, Kim, you had heard that it won awards and it was there was a lot of buzz around around the first book, uh, Gideon the Ninth, which is the one we read. And again, I'm going to keep saying it throughout this episode. Uh, <laughs> we had it pitched to us by you as lesbian necromancers in space. For both of you, how do you feel what you expected about this book matched up to what you actually got when you read it? I feel as though it had a lot more depth than I was expecting. What's that film that's like lesbian vampire, <laughs> vampire killers? Lesbian vampire killers, yeah. Yeah. With James and Gordon it, and Matt Horn. And it's just kind of like completely ripping the piss. It's, you know, a complete spoof. It's a complete joke. And so I suppose my brain just automatically went to that. And I was imagining something a lot more taking the piss. And actually what this was is hilarious, but through its very <laughs> teenage language that just made me laugh and reminded me of times when, you know, or how I talk to my school friends or how we talk to each other, you know, expressions like douche and things like that. <laughs> but, um, so yes, it was a comedy, but it wasn't ripping the piss out of the fact that it was uh, women in space getting off with each other. It was very much... Well, uh, summoning the dead, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Summoning the dead to join their orgy or something like that. Like it was much more a love story but also bizarre and bonkers and in some ways much more real than I anticipated it being yeah it was comedic it wasn't like a parody and it wasn't it's not a comedy in the sense of like it's written to be a laugh a minute and it has a happy ending ha 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 isn't everything great it's just the character of Gideon is funny and like the writing style is is entertaining but it's not a send-up of any of the characters if anything it's a send-up of taking sci-fi too seriously like the characters that are getting mocked are the characters that are very lofty in their ideals and shit it's like someone wrote a comic or a graphic novel as prose it's that kind of language yes that that's kind of so humor. true that is very true and did we all actually listen to it or did anyone actually read it? I put it in my eyes, not my ears. You put it in your eyes. Well done. Like You're like a proper reader. <laughs> but it does mean that you're going to know how to pronounce the names, and I'm not. <laughs> I think you're because... putting too much trust in how much we listened. <laughs> <laughs> because these people are not called Carol and Sue and Ben. They're called Harrowhawk, Nonagesmir, or whatever. And... Nonagesmus. Fuck. There you go. See? I did. I... This is what you get for reading it with your eyes. But... Yeah, it's, it's something that I think benefits from being listened to because it is quite removed from your everyday names. 
a lot of the reviews and a lot of the comments that people have said is like listen to an audio the narrator I think won awards for it as well so it's been praised a lot for the audio performance and I really did enjoy it because there's a lot of comedy and inflection that you get through that which is great but at the same time I wondered whether I would have benefited from taking it slightly slower and being able to flick back to like who's who <laughs> at the beginning mm. of the book because I kept being like I don't who the fuck are these people now like are this is this this house is this that house I don't know but I was expecting a lot more space yeah same yeah me too and in fact a friend of mine asked me do you think you know as a not really a sci-fi reader do you think I'd enjoy Gideon the Ninth and I was like is it sci-fi really like because I was it's basically more like, of a murder mystery <laughs> Yeah, I, I said it was a locked room mystery. I said it was a fantasy locked room mystery. I said it was like gothic horror-y kind of. But the only sci-fi element of it for me was like there are a spaceship. So I was expecting a lot more sci-fi. I was also expecting a little bit more sex. I don't know why. Yeah. I it's, yeah, because the, it's, it's because the sexuality of the characters is, is used as a selling point. Yeah. So you assume that that is somehow going to feed in. And yeah, there are there are plot lines that for which that is a part but it's not by any means the through line of the story Mm. I think also the opening paragraph is about dirty magazines so Mm. straight away you're kind of like oh porno well you you don't think it's going to be a porno but you think that there might be more reference to that because it's set set up like that straight away I think I did think it would be smuttier yeah yeah smuttier that's definitely the word like because from what I'd heard about it like it talks about how Gideon gives no fucks and is is like says says what's on her mind and and is a bit rude and likes the naughty magazines and all this sort of stuff. And like you say, it's it's sold to you as like the sexuality is front and center, and it's not like you can only be sexual if you have a sexual identity. But I was just expecting a little bit more smut. But yeah, it was a lot more um, fantasy y than I thought it yeah. was going to. I, you know, like I didn't get a lot of the space stuff. I don't think it, it really was, has a genre, really. It's, it's very like an amalgamation of so many others. It's it's a hybrid for sure. It's not. I don't think it's something that you can. <gasps> Much like my wine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Related. Yeah, it's it's definitely a hybrid. It's. I was expecting much more sci-fi. I like like you, Kim. I was expecting more space. That you know the fact of what we've said about and the, and the way it's described. Um, is that there's a few things that reminded me of, and one of which was a book that I know you've read, Kim, because you lent it to me, which was Meddling Kids, mm-hmm. in the in the tone of what it was saying and the way it was this like tongue-in-cheek comedy where it's taking the piss out of those almost comic book action heroes and these people who are constantly getting into scraps and fights. I thought it was a bit like that. It was also a bit like Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which was a sci-fi story masquerading as a murder mystery. This was like Mm. the other way around. And it also reminded me, I don't know if either of you have ever read any of them, a series of books by a guy called Garth Nix called the uh, Old Kingdom series. Fucking love those books. They're so good. (laughs) They are fantasy books about necromancy written by an author from Australia. The author of Gideon the Ninth is from New Zealand. And both books published by the same publisher, Tor, Mm. and both won the Hugo Award. Yeah, so I don't think this was exactly what I thought it was going to be, but I did really enjoy it. I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to, and I don't know Mm. if you both think the same. Yeah, it was really enjoyable and genuinely made me laugh and like kept me guessing as well which was great it was much more relatable than I would anticipate a sci-fi being because obviously you know it's so far removed from our reality and also necromancy and all that kind of business I I think because of this kind of rude humor and lack teenagery kind of language just straight away connected with us and our everyday it there was something very kind of now about it despite it being set years and years and years in the future i think we were all anticipating quote high sci-fi and the way of high fantasy where everything is very very heightened and very exaggerated and very much of that genre rather than this is a story about a mystery 
there's certain tech that's futuristic. They happen to be traveling between planets. There's your lot. That's that was pretty much what it was, wasn't it? Was it you, Samantha, that showed me <laughs> that porno years and years and years and years ago? <laughs> Star Wars! That's what it was! And that's what I was expecting! I was expecting Star Wars! Oh, yeah, Star Wars. Honestly, Star some of the horse. worst porn ever made. Star Horse. Star, Star Horse. <laughs> As in, tis pity she's a whore, not tis pity she's a horse. <laughs> <laughs> like my horse can trot up to 12 miles an hour. 12 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. I'd watch yeah, a film uh, called Star Horse. But not a not a porno called Star Wars. At the end, it's got a thing that says special effects Ken and his dad. The special effects are a fairy liquid bottle painted silver across a back. It, it, anyway, anyway, this isn't about Star Wars. This is about lesbian necromancers in space, which is very, very different. Um... <laughs> Small question. The first house. Mm-hmm. Is it Earth? Now, this is a question, isn't it? Because I spent quite a lot of time going through the houses trying to work out if they're related to planets in our solar system because there are nine of them yes granted Ooh. there are now only eight whatever justice <laughs> for I'm... pluto justice for pluto because also <laughs> the ninth house would imply pluto pluto is the a god of the underworld it's the coldest most distant planet it would make sense right but then i was trying to figure out the rest because i was like well, if the first is Earth, and then the second and third, surely they're going to be the next ones closest to the Earth. That would make sense, because third would be Venus, second would be Mars, because that's the very warlike, that's the military characters from the second. And then it started to fall down a bit, and I was like, I just don't fucking know. <laughs> it was also the reference where... Gideon was talking about this planet that's covered in water and has the grandeur of once was and she and the fact that it's kind of weirdly set in this almost Agatha Christie murder mystery like mansion it just feels very earth-like and that was like another reason why I picked the wine that I did but I didn't want to sound like a complete idiot <laughs> no I I had that I, I don't know if I know if that was that right feeling, but I kind of kept forgetting that they were on different planet like I kept thinking of them as literal houses I didn't basically I didn't think that it was big enough to be earth I thought of it as like a floating rock in space if I thought of it as anything I'm with you Alex and that that thought definitely entered my mind but I don't know it definitely know. makes a lot of sense it's really cool it's a really cool actually observation but who knows it could just be nine random planets around a random star <laughs> Because this is the first in a trilogy. Uh, it might be something that is unveiled over the course of the next few books. So we all enjoyed this book. We enjoyed it, I think, more than we all expected to, as we've just said. What did you like most about this book? Was it was it the humour? Did you uh, enjoy the way the characters were created? Did you enjoy the worlds that were described? What was your favourite thing? Kim, you go first because you're sober. Okay, fine. I like the characters... Even though I had some trouble keeping some of them straight in my head. So did they. So I knew you were going to say that. The other thing I really enjoyed about it was the sort of Agatha Christiness of it, despite the fact that it's in like base with necromancers. And I think that that element of the characters of having this huge cast of characters, but them all getting a pocket and some of them being quite standout and like you being a little bit suspicious, but you're not sure why you're suspicious and having all these like different alliances and secret stories that all kind of come to light in the end. All of that was very Agatha Christie-ish. Like it, it felt like Murder on the Orient Express or something. And I really enjoyed that element because... I am predominantly a mystery reader. Like that's one of my favourite things to read. So it it felt particularly like tuned to my my personal enjoyment. And I love me a side character as well. So I was absolutely here for fucking Ianthi going batshit. And the little alliances and stuff was what made me like Gideon's character the most was her interaction with all the other characters. So that was my favourite part. I would have said the the myriad cast of interesting and unusual characters so not that long ago i started re-watching the matrix is it a trilogy is there three i think there's four is there four there's at least remember. <laughs> i started watching the matrix stuff i've only got obviously i've only got as far as one which is why i'm unsure how many there are in the series <laughs> and i think 
the moment where Gideon puts on those sunglasses, it just reminded me of Trinity, like straight away. Or, or like, I suppose, any character from The Matrix. But it's that kind of innate, like, coolness that comes from, like, I'm going to put these sunglasses on and I'm going to be so fucking mysterious and so fucking cool. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that The Matrix, when we were younger, in the noughties, it was like flip phones were, like, the coolest thing because of The Matrix. And it, it just took me to that moment. And straight away, I was just like, Gideon is the coolest fucking girl ever. <laughs> So um, I definitely agree with you in terms of like characterization, especially when it comes to Gideon. Like I spoke about, the language was far more grounded in our everyday chat than I ever expected it to be. And just so kind of like blunt. I was, and I think it maybe also comes from having it as an audiobook as opposed to a novel, because you know you can kind of skim read or or your eyes kind of flicker to the next couple of lines whereas it's unexpected when it's an audiobook and it's also that you know comes down to the delivery as well using what maybe we sometimes refer to as kind of like teenage boy talk or whatever or that's what my work colleagues tell me that I have the language of a teenage <laughs> boy <laughs> it just... because you love her that's what she said yeah. it was like the kind of phrases like fuck me sideways or like that was pretty fucking badass and the the yeah. range in between of like why don't you eat a bag of dicks and that sort that's of stuff it. Like why don't you all... eat a bag of dicks that was one of my favorite ones as well um which we definitely say all the time <laughs> all the time and and the way that because obviously we hear it almost from Gideon's perspective which is why it's so shocking what happens at the end but her kind of opinion of all these other people is just hilarious because you kind of hear the voices of these characters and you as a reader make an assumption and then suddenly you hear Gideon's response to them and you're like, oh, that's good. I enjoy that. Well done. Mm. Well played, Gideon. Yeah, I've I've got a few quotes that I'll talk about later that I really enjoyed, but there was one as well that I remembered which is where she's talking about uh, her first impression of the Cavalier of the Third, the douchebag, uh abs um oh every time uh every time every time she goes (laughs) mad lols when she says about he's so muscular he looks like he's filled with lemons um oh yeah i love that and that (laughs) properly properly crap me up because every time i see someone who's overly overly ripped my brain goes they look like they're full of conkers so (laughs) it really works and it's that same kind of language in the audiobook, the voice that is given to um, Corona and Ianthi is so fucking made in Chelsea that every time it says mm. Babs, it's like, oh, come on, Babs. Come on, Babs. Come on. Like, are you going to be like that, Babs? It was so, like, posh dickhead that every that was, time I was like, this is perfect. This is absolutely perfect. That was absolutely, as soon as I was given a description of Corona, which is, oh, what a funny name to have in this particular <laughs> time. All I thought every time they talked about her magnificent hair was uh, the Ra girls from school, the Jack Wills, everything over to one side. She's uh, she's meant to be one of them. And I thought that was so good. <laughs> I was like, I know was, this girl. I, I, and I think that's tr- true. I think like we all know these characters, despite the fact that it's like lesbian necromancers in space. Like, yeah. set hundreds of thousands of years into the future. We know exactly who these people are. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's a relatability that the distance and the the strangeness of the setting doesn't dampen at all. And I think that's yeah. really, really good. I'm just scrolling through a list of the quote like some of the quotes and stuff and I keep <laughs> giggling to myself. But like as examples of things, Alex, that you were saying, which was like, We do bones, motherfucker. And um <laughs> Uh, it was very if this if this was going to be a film this would be directed by like James Gunn or you know yeah. one of, or Joss Whedon or one of those it's a little well it's a little bit like it's that but so, it's a little bit like the office and like yeah, um, it's so british it's so like, british 
Parks and Rec or something. Well, she's from New Zealand, isn't she? And she lives in the UK at the moment. I Yeah, when I was reading it, I was like, to start with, because it was this very action-driven, like the first fight between Harrow and Gideon, I was like, oh, this is this is written by someone American. And then as it went on and more of the humour came out, I was like, no, this person is British. And then I looked it up and I was like, ah, they're from New Zealand, which makes a lot more sense with the sense of humour because I think Kiwi the New and Zealand, yeah. are yeah. much more similar. But yeah, it's, it's that dryness, it's that... Uh, have either of you ever seen Black Sheep, the film? Yes, yes. Again, the New very... Zealand film, isn't it? That, yeah, yeah, New Zealand film. Yeah. And Taika Waititi, obviously, is that like essentially the biggest thing to come out of New Zealand in the last five years. He did What We Do in the Shadows and did Thor Ragnarok and mm. uh, Jojo Rabbit and all those kind of things. And it is very much that style of humour. So it's hyperbole and bluntness sort of married together, like um, <laughs> yeah. that I think that I think works so well. This is a quote um, again off this list, which is Gideon speaking to Harrow, who's again for those of you sort of listening along at home, Harrow is her essentially her lord. Nonagesimus, she says slowly. The only job I'd do for you would be if you wanted someone to hold the sword as you fell on it. The only job I'd do for you would be if you wanted your ass kicked so hard the lock tomb opened and a parade came out to sing, Lo, a destructed ass. The only job I'd do for you would be if you wanted me to spot you while you backflipped off the top of the tier into the draper. That's three jobs, said Harry Hawk. <laughs> It's, I just like I just fucking love that it's Harrow Hawk actually not Harrow Hawk I keep saying Harrow Hawk because I'm thinking of birds oh yeah why. it is because it's it's an R not a W but I think it's the Harrow really confusing yeah. me I'm like Harrow Hawk <laughs> Harrow Hawk it's basically humour character relatability and the fact that it's unexpected even when you th- think you have it pigeonholed as to what it's going to be so I think that's time for us to have a little break and because you all look forward to me saying it every week maybe have a wee and then we'll be back after the break to talk more about perhaps what we didn't like with the book and what we would see it as being in a film or tv adaptation So we're back from our break, but before we continue talking about Gideon the Ninth, uh, let's have a little check-in with our booze and non-booze. So, Kim, how is your, I forget what it's called, the fake gin and tonic? I mean, it's basically called fake gin and tonic from m It's fine. It's quite sweet. It's very fizzy. I'm burping a lot, if I'm honest. So it's fine. I made my bed, I'll lie in it. <laughs> Do you wish you bought booze? Obviously. Obviously I wish you bought booze. <laughs> What about you guys? How is your uh, super awesome red wine? Not that I'm at all jealous. <laughs> pretty, um, pretty super awesome. Yeah. It's getting to the stage of being a bit abrasive on the tongue now, you know, when you've had too much too quickly and you're like, ooh, okay. But the flavours are still really good. Just the texture's gone a bit off. Um, mine is still quite nice. It's not very thick, and I think that's why I'm enjoying it. It's very drinkable. Have more water available when you are drinking it, because it makes your throat quite dry. (laughs) Enjoyable all round, then, for the most part. Yes, so, Gideon the Knife. We've talked about what we liked about it. Is there anything that you thought when you were reading the book, or listening to the book, in both of your cases, where you thought, Mm, that's not quite right that's a bit clumsy was there anything that stuck out to you that could have been improved there were definitely things like it felt like a lot and it was a lot to keep track of and I I finished it today and I kind of had that my head is really full from quite a lot of information feeling there were parts of the plot or parts of like the reveals or parts of the motivations that felt rushed. Like there was so much world building and so much character building and so much exploration of this weird little puzzle that they're going and so much description of all the battle scenes that actually in parts, I felt like the relationship development was not as strong as I would have liked, especially considering how it ends and the the motivation for that like i can see it building because i'm familiar with that kind of trope but i i think that more could have been done to strengthen the relationship between gideon and harrow like more development there more interaction between them but also the alliances that gideon and harrow form with camilla and sextus 
Sextus. Yeah, he has like a Planemides or something named. Planet pla- Palamenides. Palamenides, that's it. I would have liked to see more of that, but and yet I also felt like I got more of Gideon's admiration for Camilla than I did uh, her admiration for Harrow. It almost feels like Harrow's is the least developed relationship there, which considering that, you know, she essentially sacrifices herself for Harrow's cause. I, I would have liked a bit more of that, but then I also would have liked a bit more of a lot of the other actual relationship building rather than just character building. I completely agree with you on that, particularly between Gideon and Harrow, because obviously the whole thing you're presented with is lesbian necromancers in space. And then I read a synopsis of the book after I'd read the book to make sure that I'd got everything because I was like, there's so much going on here that I feel like I've missed something or that I feel like some things need clarification. And in the synopsis I read was like, oh, and th- and then after their whole scene in, in the swimming pool, they begin a tentative romantic relationship. And I was like, um, do they? That's not, that's not how I would describe what happened because very much throughout the whole thing, you have this dynamic of, you hate each other, now just kiss. It's that thing, and I get that, but you don't have much time between that scene in the pool where, you, where you're told Harry Hark's backstory and how what her parents did, blah, 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 and then this enormous final battle in which, like you say at the end, Gideon sacrifices herself so that Harry Hark can beat the, this immortal being who is essentially tormenting the rest of them throughout the, the, the rest of the book. And so a lot of this book is spent building a hatred between these two characters and this resentment and this tension, which you're kind of aware is probably partly sexual or could very easily switch to being sexual if you wanted it to be. But then suddenly this respect and this, oh my God, I'd do anything for you, I'd die for you, is over very, very quickly. Yeah, Yeah. I totally mirror that because I didn't end up finishing the book ahead of this podcast. I very much want to finish it because I have enjoyed it for all the reasons we spoke about. But I had to then use our good old friend Wikipedia to find out the rest of the plot, Uh, much like my degree. Like both of you said, I could anticipate that the love interest was going to be Harrow because of this whole thing, them hating each other and this tension and whatever. But I mean, I had to stop on like chapter 24 or something and it was still not as developed as the hatred that had been built like for a reader to believe that she would sacrifice herself for this cause. It's not even that she would sacrifice herself for the other person's life which you could maybe get because they're a, like Gideon's a good person. It was she will sacrifice herself for this other woman to become something else, to be higher in her career, to become some like another kind of otherworldly being. Well, yes, but I think this is something that the sacrifice at the end is not solely for the purpose of making Harrow a, a later. That is part of it, but the idea at the time is in doing so, it will protect Camilla, it will protect Harrow, and it will lead on to other things. And also, I read a very brief synopsis of the next book because I wanted to see you know how this would lead on and there's through line there into the next book which makes that sacrifice make sense so i i agree that to to start with you you spend two-thirds of this book being like they just hate each other they hate each other there's no they grew up together that's about it there's no reason for this and then she sacrifices herself seemingly for harrow but there is more to it than that so we talked earlier about how many characters there are in this because if you just take the eight houses that land at the first house as it's called uh, which is where the majority of the action takes place there are eight houses or eight primaries from their house their cavaliers who are essentially their bodyguards which is at least 16 Uh, in the case of the third house there's another one so that's 17 people plus the people in the house plus the people on the original um, world (laughs) it's a lot (laughs) it's a lot of characters but is there anyone that you like this one this is the one i love was was gideon your favorite did you have kim i know you said about your love for side characters as we've established before on this podcast did you have anyone that you like i want more of this person this is the one i want I found Camilla and Sextus like interesting because they seemed like weirdos in a way you're kind of told 
that Harrow and Gideon are the weirdos. Like, you're told that they're, like, all cultish and weird. But Sextus and Camilla seemed like weirdos because every time they, they were mentioned, it would be like, and they were just, like, looking at it, like, touching it and being really dispassionate and touching all this gross stuff and, like, really inquisitive and curious and scholarly, I think is how they're described. And I found that quite endearing in a way because, especially in a mystery context, it was like, oh, that's Sherlock. They've got Sherlock there. Yeah. Like, it felt like a Sherlock character or a Poirot even. And then I wouldn't necessarily say I liked her, but I knew something was up with Ianthe from the beginning and I was intrigued by her. I was like, get your, get to the fucking point, Ianthe. Like, become your bad bitch self. I was ready for it. So I wasn't surprised when she kind of beat everyone to the punch and figured it out and was a cold hard bitch. I quite enjoyed that. I would like to hear more from the parents of Harrow who have been brought back from the dead. I think that would be really interesting. <laughs> I quite enjoyed it. Did she like bring them back when she was like 10 or something? Yeah, I think she was 10 or 11. Yeah, and then they were yeah. like had like a vow of silence or whatever and then were locked in a cave while she like went off and did all the things that she's <laughs> yeah. doing. Ran yeah. everything. I so just, they killed it, themselves. She brought them back for like appearances' tough sake. Tough shit. Puppeted <laughs> them for five years. And then when she left the planet, when they've taken a vow, we're going to lock them up. Yeah, I know. I just really them up that. And I imagined them like, um, you know, like in Beetlejuice, that couple. <laughs> like, that's how I imagined them. But like, when when they're like weirdly uh, being all like 80s and like, like moving their face or something like, or I just imagined them like that. And I enjoyed that. So I would enjoy some more from them. The weapons trainer as well, like similarly. Eglemony. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds about right, yeah. Made me think of the uh, Amazon trainee woman in Wonder Woman. Uh, It made me think of the teacher in Game of Thrones, Arya's sword fighting teacher. Uh, It made me think of Brienne of Tarth, if she'd been able to be. Yes. Arya's sword teacher like if she'd been allowed to get old that would have been that would her. Have been her I also quite enjoyed teacher yeah I enjoyed teacher morally I, ambiguous teacher yeah. yeah and I think it also has something to do with the fact that Kim and I were listening to the audiobook and the voice of teacher was quite amusing um, quite distinctive as well yeah it was really distinctive and seemed oblivious but obviously wasn't like yeah it kind of just I think there's more to that character than meets the I liked, there is. I liked that there was so much like enjoyment in being misunderstood. It's like, no, there's only one rule. It's like, but you said this. It's like, no, I fucking didn't. I said there's only one rule and that's it. Get the fuck on with it, basically, is what they were saying. And I was just like, <laughs> I like Bridget. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Like, You said we can't go in locked doors. No. No, I said you can't go in locked doors without permission. Nudge, nudge, a a permission. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like I, I enjoy that he would probably enjoy the theatricality of it all and like yeah. the the mystery and the. Change. Also, in my head, he has a little little goatee, like a little. Yeah, like... and he's very <laughs> short. In my head, he's very yeah. short. A Mr. Tumnus. Mr. Yeah. Tumnus kind. I enjoyed Magnus as well whilst he was alive. But I think, again, that's a lot of that's down to the audio because I think he has a Welsh accent. Oh, and, okay. Like, he's this big, okay. jolly, like, oh, my cooking's better than my fighting and my necromancy. <laughs> Gideon, you and I have got something in common. <laughs> he does sound like that when he's, like, inviting them around for a dinner party. I He was my favourite and not my absolute favourite. I think, do you know what? I think Gideon might have been one of my favourites, but Magnus was, was definitely up there. I also enjoyed how, this is not really a character thing, this is more a writing thing, but I enjoyed the, the whole, like, epithet thing, like every time you talk you talked about corona corona birth it was the lovely her that her lovely legs her lovely this like i'm not saying i enjoyed that word and when they talked about the the teenagers that from the fourth they were the shitty teenagers the crappy teenagers like everyone had their kind of yeah yeah, the epithets exactly and it was like in um like in greek mythology uh, like in the odyssey where you've got like prudent Uh, penelope and shit like that (laughs) athena of the flashing eyes and it was very much that so i i liked that because i was like i recognize this 
this device, this character device, and it was it was effective and, and recognisable. So we've talked a bit about the different characters in the book and what we think of our favourites. This is a book that is very centred around female characters and female stories and it has been discussed as a feminist book what do you think of the way that these female storylines are shown and do you think the way that they are shown inherently means this is a feminist book or do you think it is just a story that tells the tale of women i think that there is an element of this book that that takes it that step above what what we so often talk about when we're talking about feminism where we talk about it being a female-led story and it takes it to a story where people are just people. There is no distinction or query about the fact that Harrow and Gideon are women or that there are women cavaliers or that someone's is in a lesbian relationship or someone is in a straight relationship or someone's maybe in a thruple or there's no value placed on like, well, men are better cavaliers or no men are better necromancers because they're more intelligent. Like there's none of that. It Like it doesn't come into that. And I think that in a way that makes it an ideal of a, of a feminist book in that it's, it's post the need to make a point. Like the book itself makes a point. It's what we always talk about when we talk about representation, that it's there, but it's not the fucking point of the book. Like it's not, this is not a sermon on women can be fighters too, or lesbians are just as valid as straight couples. It's, it's just, they're just, they just happen to be. And I think that like, for me, that makes it an inherently feminist book. And in fact, the kind of book in a kind of feminist world that I want to read, that I want more of, I want more books where everything is just so fucking cool and it's just accepted. There's no explanation. There's no justification. There's no, there's no history where they had to struggle to get to the point and Harry's worried that she wouldn't be taken seriously because she's a woman. There's none of that. It's just... It can be either. Do what you want. Like it, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of how this book, despite being about fucking necromancers in space, or not fucking necromancers in space, somehow managing to be more relatable than other books that we've read, more directly transferable to our lived experience because of that, because there is no fucking neon sign over every... Every it, time you are pointed to a character issue. might not have been white straight able-bodied yeah um issue with a capital i gendered like, it it yeah. just exactly. becomes part of the architecture in which the story happens and it and doesn't mean that the narrative around those certain storylines was any was negated it just meant that it, it was, was acknowledged by it. and then the actual we're trying to fight something that we can't see that's the story not mm. Oh my god, I'm in love with a woman. Yeah, it wasn't exactly. like it's not being exploitative because it's like lesbians. Like you know how I said at the beginning that I was quite surprised because I thought it sounded almost like the tagline sounded like lesbian vampire killers or whatever we spoke about and it, it kind of ex, it, it ex, it's not real like gay relationships. It's just using the word lesbian to exploit it because the marketing is using the word lesbian to fetishize the story. Yes, it's nothing. This book is not that at all, and no. so yeah, that is really. I wonder who put together that tagline. Like it could have been. I don't. You know, I don't have any of the re reviews in front of me, but it could have been the best sci-fi story of the last ten years, winner of the Hugo Award, um, which it was. Any other thing could have been on the front, but no, they went with lesbian necromancers in space. Yeah, which cheapens it so much. I don't know that it does necessarily cheapen it. Like for me, it. I did, think. It, I think. It, I think. Pigeonholes it, it in an unnecessary way. Like you could have yeah. put necromancers in space. Yeah, that's true. I, I do. I, but I do suspect that for some people, that is a draw in a non-salacious way. Like we, we are looking at it as you know, we're comparing it to lesbian vampire hunters. Some people might see lesbian as that's a story we want to read. That's people like me. Like some people don't see that word and immediately think lesbian vampire hunters. No, but also the word lesbian is like, obviously everyone identifies as they want to identify. There's no choose the word that you want to apply to you or don't choose the word if you don't want to be labeled that way. But lesbian is a word that is, has been almost almost co-opted by the porn industry yeah. um you know women in same-sex relationships often use wlw or um different queer. or different queer or just um, gay just 
Yeah. Or just gay or like different words, whereas the word lesbian very immediately has connotations. Something. Yeah, it has connotations and it has something attached to it. And that doesn't mean that word is any less valid. What it means is that the straight community sees something when they look at it and it's not a word mm. that is necessarily for the people who it is written about. Yeah. Before. Yeah. It might and and yeah, and I think I think both things can be true. I think that it can be misleading to some people and probably appealing to some people for both parody tawdry salacious reasons and intellectual welcoming representational reasons like i think both can be true and i think you know the point that we're making is that we we think that this book leans much more into the welcoming representational real world actually how we want things to be rather than the tawdry salacious exploitative Way. This book has not written these characters to titillate, to um, fetishise, to whatever. They just happen to be characters experiencing a same-sex attraction. Mm-hmm. And the way this story has been posited is with that in mind, even though actually it has fuck all to do with what happens. I know that I know that there's a self-sacrificing element at the end, but actually that has nothing to do with people's gender. <laughs> <laughs> I think the tagline doesn't do this book justice. Mm, no. But that being said, more books like this, please. So yeah, so, so I think let- that sums up our thoughts on the feminism of Gideon the Ninth. I mean, there's there's much more we can go into, but like we said, we are an hour long podcast, and um, we can go for as long as the alcohol lets us, <laughs> which automatically puts a crimp on our time. So we talked a bit about the popularity of this book and how it was published a year ago, pretty much exactly a year ago, and already the sequel has come out and the third book in the trilogy is announced and will be out shortly. If this series were to be made into a film or a TV show, do you have anyone in mind for the casting? Would you see anyone playing Gideon? Would you see anyone playing Harrow? Would you see anyone playing um, Sextus or Camilla or any of the other main characters? Tell me your thoughts. This would definitely be a Netflix series. Mm, I would definitely. love this to be a series, not a I would yeah, definitely series. Yeah, not a film. Only only six parts. Six part is enough. Yeah. Mm. I think it's always really tricky because so many of the characters in these kinds of things are quite young. And I don't know that many young actors after a point. What about twenty eight year olds playing sixteen year olds? Because Yeah. Yeah, even then, I'm starting to get old, man. I have an image of Gideon, like a young really? Emily Blunt I, I would be really good. And I know that's a weird choice, but there was that one film where she was like a badass wearing all cargo boots and everything. And like visually, I just feel like she's got the right, she's got the right look for me. We know she suits being a redhead, among other things. But also I think because she's, I think because she could do the comedic side of it really well. The the Britishness that we talked about with the humour. I feel like Emily Blonde might actually be a really good choice, but she's a bit older than I think Gideon is meant to be. I think interesting, because the person that if I were casting this ten years ago, fifteen years ago even, to play Harrow would be Kira Knightley. I was just thinking that actually. very, very angular, very androgynous very straight like harrow has these wry moments of humor but she is quite a straight character she's um mm. ironically um her the way she's the way she's played it, there's no room for for fun really or not much room for fun so i'd say her but now i'd say the girl who plays 11 in not 11 yes 11 yeah 11 Stranger, and um, millie and, bobby brown Enola, Millie Bobby Brown, that's it. I was like, Millie something Brown. Couldn't remember her middle name. Millie Bobby Brown. Because I think, seeing what she's done with Eleven, I think she would be really good as Harrow. The sexist guy, for me, it needs to be someone, again, almost almost stuffily, Britishly bumbling, like Redmayne or Andrew Garfield or something, who can do that slightly constrained enthusiasm. Who's the woman um, who's in the new Star Wars films? Who's the British woman? Um, Daisy Ridley. Yes. 
I could see her in this film. I'm not sure what character she'd play. She'd be a good Camilla. Oh, she'd be a good Camilla. Yes. Yeah. You know who else would be a good Camilla? Alicia Vikander. Oh, Dulcinea. Dulcinea. You know who would be good as her? You probably won't agree with me on this, but I'm just thinking of like fragile looking people with big eyes. Anna Kendrick. I was actually going to say this is the one young person actor person that I can translate to. Have you guys have a, uh, do you know who Dove Cameron is? Nope. She's this, I, to be honest, I don't know what she's in. She looks like a Disney princess. And I think she, I think she was a Disney star and she's all sort of, you know, blonde hair, big eyes, sweet as pie. No, I don't see that. I I do. Oh, see, I see her Dulcinea's, as being very like. is pale brown hair, blue eyes. She's got brown eyes and blonde hair. Oh yeah, but people can change that. I just mean no, like I in know, the terms of wrong. She looks quite delicate. Gideon's reasonably hench. She does a hundred press ups just for fun, like, and then goes, "Oh, I had to stop after a hundred. Uh, maybe the woman Karen Gillan five years but, ago. Like, yeah, because she plays. Nebula and Amy Pond. That would be a good crossover. But she, again, too old. Sansa Stark. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Sophie Turner. Sophie Turner. Mm. I don't know if she could do the whole, like, shades on rock music blaring in the background. Yeah. And punch I'd like to believe. Yeah, but I think maybe now she could with a little bit more. Maybe. I'm, I'm, Gideon, I've got a big question mark over because in my head I have a very obvious image of her, but it's not related to a specific actress. So I know that both of you have listened to the audiobook rather than reading a physical book or reading a digital copy like me. Um, but I wondered if you had any quotes that you'd made a note of that you thought, I really enjoyed this, this was a really good part of the book, or this really spoke to me. There were a couple of bits, like we've already talked about the, the, the comedy aspects of it, where Gideon would come up with like amazing one-liners such as, if my heart had a dick, you would kick it. Um, <laughs> which I really enjoyed. There's also, what we haven't talked about as much, is is the other side of her language that was very beautiful. But one thing that I remember thinking about is when Harrow and Gideon are talking, it's like, I need you to trust me. What can I do to make you trust me? And she says, be trustworthy. And I, I thought like that was... Like that stuck out to me for a moment because it was this kind of like, what do you want me to do? I want you to be a person, like be a real person, like give me give me something to hold on to. And um, those little moments were the only parts where I felt like Harrow and Gideon's relationship was developing, like though, that that honesty and you didn't get a lot of it. So that one really stuck out for me. So I uh, highlighted two. The first one was very early on. It was when... Um... Gideon is waiting for the shuttle to take her off planet and she first, you well you first as the reader first encounter um, Harrow and the quote and this is what made me think of you Kim was um, Reverend Daughter Harrow Hark Nonagesimus had pretty much cornered the market on wearing black and sneering it compromised 100% of her personality <laughs> I'll take that, I'll take that but yeah, that was a, that was a particularly good point. And then the other point was a bit less fun, but just one that you were like, oh, oh, the way you've done that is good. And um, it was chapter four, again, not very far into the book, but um, Gideon is is a bit, she's quite down and um, Harrow is just off doing her thing when they first get to the planet and is not telling her anything about what's going on. And there's a line that says, uh, she lay in her cell, picking at life like it was a meal that she didn't want to eat. I and remember I like, that, yeah. Ooh, that's good. That like whole pushing it around the plate, being like, oh, I don't really want it. I thought that was quite good. The, there is these hilarious lines and then these these beautiful lines. And I think that that's, that's the specialness of this book, that alongside the fact that it's funny and entertaining, it's also a really good you know it's a good plot it's a good mystery it's a good story and it's well written like it's beautifully written i think that's what makes it like actually quite a standout book so i think that brings us to the end of the episode this week but before we go we have a book and some wines to rate so let's start with wine uh or not wine as the case may be alex what about your earth granite granite earth <laughs> yeah no it it's been perfectly nice so much nicer than any red that i would usually choose 
and it was an offer for £6.50. So there we go. Bargain. I am going to give it a three. For a red for you, that is good. Three grapes for granite earth. Kim, you're, again, I, I, I've not even bothered to memorise the name because it's not It British. doesn't really have a name. That's it's the just thing. number six. It is literally Mumbo called Alcohol six. Free Sparkling Botanical G&T number six tea total. Serve over ice. Uh, it's fine. Um, I feel a little bit bloaty from it. It's like quite fizzy and not in the like satisfying fizzy way of Prosecco. My teeth hurt a little bit. It's good. I wouldn't jump to buy it again, even in summer as an alcoholic substitute, a non-alcoholic substitute. I think that I would probably rather buy soda water and put lime in it than I would buy this again. (laughs) But that not... Not necessarily because it's bad, but just because I I personally am less on the sweet side of gin and anything anyway. So I'm going to give it a three because I think that it's perfectly fine. Like there's nothing standout about it. There's nothing wrong with it. And actually I have drunk, well, I drunk a shit ton more of it than I did of the Tempest and that was alcohol. So (laughs) three grapes, three grapes. What about you, Samantha? Oh, my Rex Mondi. So this was really good. The first glass and a half, I was like, oh, my God, this is so nice. This is so lovely. This is the perfect thing. And then it got a bit mouth claggy. I mean, you're probably not meant to drink a bottle to yourself. Says who? Yeah, I know. But people don't make wine for people like us. (laughs) It was still some of the best red I've had in a while. And it's actually still some of the best wine I've had in a while because a lot of it recently has made me just be like... Oh, I'll drink it if I have to. So I'm going to go with a four with the Rex Mundi. That's really I'm, good. To begin really? with, I was bordering. I was bordering on a four point five. It gets less good as time goes on. So yeah, four. And what about Gideon the Ninth, the first in the book of the Locked Tomb trilogy by Tasman Muir? Who would like to kick off with their great rating? I'll kick off purely because I have not finished it. So I feel like my rating should come first because, you know, it's less uh, measured, I suppose. I'd really like to give it a 4.5, but I don't think I can because I haven't experienced the whole thing. And I also had to listen to it on super speed. And I think if I had time and space to enjoy it, I would give it that rating but I'm going to give it a four for all the reasons we spoke about, for the fact that I relate to these crazy bonkers characters. It it was joyous. So I'm going to give it a four. I like that a book about death was joyous. Um, but it was joyous. It like, was, though. Oh, it was joyous. I really, I, I, I mean it, but it's, it's so, like, surprising because there was a brief moment when I chose it where I was like, oh, we're not really going to want to talk about this because it's a bit dark. And then, oh, no, it's really fun. Probably the most fun we've had for a bit. That's quite nice. One of the lightest things we've done in a while. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, I also am rating it four. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the characters. I really enjoyed the plot. I, I had the same kind of, I think I rushed it and I think I might have rated it higher if I had luxuriated with it but at the same time I still think I would have come away with it being like the fuck that is a lot of information to take I thought it was really great I thought there are parts of it that suffered because of the amount that was going on and that parts of it aren't always my cup of tea and so naturally I'm not like as in love with it as I am with some five star reads but four stars which is is no small feat four grapes sorry no small feat I agree. Um, I gave this four stars on Goodreads. I, if I could do 0.5, I would. I think I'd give this a 4.5, um, which is one of the highest ratings I've ever given any, anything on this podcast, let alone in my life. <laughs> but it was because it was exactly my kind of humour. It was a story that was not what I expected. It was, it was surprising. It was tender. It was there was a decent amount of action in it there was it, it it had a lot of what i like in books the reason i wouldn't give it a 5 is because i think sometimes the pacing was off just because nothing's happening for your characters doesn't mean nothing has to happen for your readers 
So that's why I can't give it the full five. And I know from reading ahead to um, Harrow the Ninth, which is the second book, and then beyond that, there's Electo the Ninth, which obviously isn't out yet. This is a trilogy I would like to keep reading and I want to know more about. And I think that this has done a good job of setting up a story, but doesn't leave you at the end of it going, this is something that's created purely to sell a trilogy, which given that the, the books that the book that you and I read recently, Alex, the book of Coley, which is very much set up to be a setup essentially <laughs> for the following two books. I think the fact that you can read this book and not have to continue reading is really, really good. Yeah, four point five. Loved it. Really good. Thank you for picking it, Ken. Ah, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of Grape Culture. <laughs> Alex is still opening her wine. Um, <laughs> I've got a tiny durable left. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we are at the end of the show this week. Please do come back in two weeks' time. We'll have another episode for you. If you are listening on an Apple device and you've enjoyed it, don't forget to give us a rating, leave us a review, because we are needy, needy bitches, and we love to know what you think. You can also head over to our website, which is www.grapeculturepodcast.co.uk, or we are on social media, at grapeculturepod on Twitter, at grapeculturepodcast on Instagram. So thank you for listening, and we will see you in two weeks for a brand new episode of Grape Culture. Bye-bye. Bye.